That's right. Okay, Sergio, I'm I'm here if you need me. Um, let's see here. We got. Uh, oh, let me go get my Bible. That always helps us to have a Bible during Bible study. All right. Let's see here. Uh, we have. Uh, let me read Psalm 119, verse 73, before we get started. And Psalm Isaiah, Psalm 119, verse 73. It says, Yud. Your hands have made me and fashioned me. Give me understanding that I may learn your commandments. Those who fear you will be glad when they see me, because I have hoped in your word. I know, O Lord, that your judgments are right, and that in faithfulness you have afflicted me. Let I pray your merciful kindness be for my comfort, according to your word to your servant. Let your tender mercies come to me, that I may live, for your law is my delight. Let the proud be ashamed, for they tr treated me wrongfully with falsehood. But I will meditate on your precepts. Let those who fear you turn to me, those who know your testimonies. Let my heart be blameless regarding your statutes, that I may not be ashamed. Let's see here. We got a couple of prayer requests before we get started. We got um, Sam. Sam. Oh, friend on Facebook and attends online. He lost his middle son in a car accident this week. And I can't even imagine what he's going through right now. And uh, he's asked for prayers for his family as they go through this. I can't even imagine. And uh, Blake, who comes here on uh, Thursday nights when he can, is having neck surgery. And he was very depressed. He's been going through, you know, he's had every body problem that you can have. He's got uh, just everything tomorrow, he's going through neck surgery. And uh, he said the doctors have been arguing, like 10 of them. They're back and forth arguing, so they don't even know what to do. So he's obviously a little bit stressed about that. And then uh, I also yes. got, what's that? Yeah. I can't even imagine. Yeah. And then we have uh, Lisa. I'm sorry. Um, yeah, Lisa, is. that was Sunday I mentioned, but I'll mention it again as she's looking for uh, uh, being able to move get a new location and uh, she's asking for prayer for that and then um, Susie called me today and she has something with her son I don't want to let it go without her permission but she did ask for prayer she's got something that she and her son are working through right now and she's asked for prayer for that and uh, I know that Graham I saw him make a post a little while ago and he says he's taking all kinds of medicines we know it's Graham in Scotland he's just gone through so much physically so much time in the hospital and so he's obviously still on some type of medication, and so we'll keep him in prayer as well. And uh, Doug in Ireland has had really bad headaches lately, and uh, I think he was better a couple days ago, the last time I heard from him, but he's still uh, really struggling with those. And so anyway, uh, those come to mind right now. I know there's a couple others that I misplaced in my mind, and I'm sorry about that, but let's pray for these folks. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the chance to meet here and to share in your word and to share in fellowship with other Christians and to uh, exalt you through our uh, actions, through our lives, and through our fellowship and Bible study. And Lord, you are in control of all things. You know the people that are having troubles. You know the people that are going through all kinds of distress right now, physically and emotionally. And Mike comes to mind. He's He's got uh, uh, surgery or uh, a procedure going today and other things that are scheduled. And so he's also asked for prayer. We just got a list of them, Lord, and you know them. And uh, those that I haven't mentioned, you're aware of. And we would pray that you would lift all of these people up and give them uh, comfort and aid in their uh, times of trouble and give them 
the ability to praise you even through their storms of life so that you will be glorified and that they will be built up. And we know that you're going to carry us all safely to your heavenly home because of what Christ did for us. So this is a temporary walk. Lisa, just remember Lisa, just almost lost one of her toes uh, over in Australia. We pray for her and we pray that she's okay and uh, that she'll be healing quickly without any infection in that. And Lord, once again, you know all of the things, even those that I've forgotten, but uh, be with us in this class, be with us through the study today. And I would pray that everybody that listens would be willing to check out what they hear today and make sure that it is actually correct and not something that uh, would lead them down a false and, or a barren path. And Lord, we pray this, that you will be glorified and we do pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Okay, we have, uh, rather than reading this day in Christian history, which I've got things, and if I read both of them, we always get behind, but I got something from Larry Mitchell. She's out in Los Alamos, and she attends online, and it's just uh, very basic. Happy Passover. So this is to everybody here, and uh, wonderful. Larry, if you're listening right now, thank you very much for that. And then I got another one here just today, I think it was, or yesterday maybe, and uh, this is from uh, Larry and Kathleen, and they're out in Billings, Montana. And they sent something, same thing, for uh, Easter Resurrection Day to the church. And she included something that uh, it, from Jonathan Kahn. Uh, he's a person that writes prophecy books. But he wrote something that's rather interesting and uh, it, kind of pretty for the time of year. So I'll read it to you. Um, in the scriptures, it is written that we are God's workmanship. In the original Greek, it says we are his poema, which means that we, that which is made, something fashioned or crafted together, something, someone's workmanship, as in a masterpiece. From poema comes the word poem. If we become God's work, we become God's poem. We can either live our lives trying to make our life, our own life work, or we can let our lives become his workmanship. A poem cannot write itself or lead itself. It must be written by and led by its author. It must flow from the author's heart. So to become the poem of God, we let our lives emanate from the author of our life. We let our life flow out of the heart of God. We follow his will above our own and his plan above our own. We let his spirit move us and his love to be the impulse of all we do. Then our life will flow as it was meant to flow with rhyme and beauty and will become his masterwork, the poem of God. So there you go. Kind of special. Anyway, there you, there you go with some extra reading today. And then from there, we'll get into 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28 is where we're starting out today. And we got, uh, oh, about an hour and 15 minutes to get through that. So we'll get through a couple verses. Let's see here. 1 Corinthians. And there's a couple people that haven't attended the Bible study today. And just so you know how we do it, I always, I use the commentary that I wrote on each book of the Bible rather than just talking off the top of my head. And so I do more reading than anything, but I will stop and make some comments. And um, uh, so that's that's the format we use. But if you have any questions, just ask Burke. He never uh, ceases to uh, ask something or another, and it keeps us lively. So wonderful, wonderful to have Burke here, and feel free to just ask whatever. But 1 Corinthians 7, verse 28 I use the New King James Version for Bible studies, and everybody else brings their own, and sometimes we compare them if they make a little bit of a difference. And, you know, there's 10,000 different translations in the Bible, and they cannot plagiarize one another, so they're always thinking up new words that mean the same thing. And uh, sometimes the structure will be a little bit different, but in the end, 
God's word stands. So um, who's, ah, hi, Elaine, how are you? Hi. Let's see here, we got uh, 728. But even if you do marry, this is, we've been talking about marriage all through 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 7. He's uh, about three quarters of the way done with the chapter. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned. And if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. What I'll do is I'll back up to verse 25 so you kind of get some context. Uh, they have been writing to Paul asking questions, and he is responding to the questions they asked. Okay, so starting verse 25, which is the beginning of a paragraph. Now concerning virgins, I have no command from the Lord, yet I give judgment as one whom the Lord in his mercy has made trustworthy. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress. So he's not making a uh, prescriptive, you've got to do this throughout the church age. He's saying there's a present distress, and this is what I recommend, but, okay, which is what we just read, the but. I suppose, therefore, that this is good because of the present distress, that it is good for a man to remain as he is. Are you bound to a wife? Do not seek to be loosed. Are you loosed from a wife? Do not seek a wife. But even if you do marry, you have not sinned, and if a virgin marries, she has not sinned. Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. So here's comments on that. In this, in the preceding verse, it was noted that there is no reason to suppose that Paul's words in that verse were a fixed and firm rule. As I said, he's writing about a current distress, and we went to some other verses which show that he's obviously not making a firm rule because he says something different here. He's relating to the distress of the time in Corinth. Okay, he says, um, but rather it is an exhortation based on circumstance. Those who do marry are not in violation of his inspired words. Continuing on, he notes that if a virgin marries, she is not sinned. The same is true with the virgin. No sin has been committed. But it may be that the new couple will face undue hardships because of their decision. And in this, Paul says, but I would spare you. In other words, I give you advice to spare you from those hardships, which could be expected because of the current distress there in Corinth. He's acting as if a loving father giving advice to his still naive son. If we consider the soldier who is in battle, of course, he would not be thinking about marriage. He's under fire and there's death all around him. However, if he gets a pass to an area which is not under fire, he might meet a young lady and fall in love. His desire to marry her and never let her go. But he also has the reality of returning to the battle when the pass is expired. And I've seen this a million times, even when I was in the service. Guys would go down, you know, on a, a TDY, which is temporary duty. They go to Korea or they go to the Philippines. They come back and they say, I'm in love. I want to get married, you know? Okay. We weren't in a time of war at the time, so a little different situation. But he also has the reality of returning to the battle when his pass is expired. This then may be likened to the situation to which Paul is writing. There was some sort of hardship at the time of his letter, and it would make it difficult, a difficult path for newlyweds. In his words, he is giving them advice to alleviate that difficult situation. A commander might write to his young private and say, you will be coming back to the lines and you could die, or your wife's village may come under fire and you might lose her. His words would be an attempt to help him think the issue through. However, in the end, the private will make his choice in whichever way he chooses, unless specifically ordered to the contrary, he will not be considered insubordinate, such as the case with Paul's advice here. In life application, the Bible gives explicit commands which require obedience. 
It also gives words of advice and counsel, which if acted upon will lead to happiness. Which book of the Bible is the most like that in the whole Bible? Gives advice, doesn't give commands all the way through it. Don't do this, do this. Proverbs, Proverbs exactly. If not acted upon, the result isn't sinful, but sadness, loss, or difficulty may be the result. That is all the way through the book of Proverbs. My son, listen to my advice. My son, if you do this, you'll save yourself from this. You'll save yourself from that. If you do this, you will prosper in this way. Okay, and once again, Proverbs is not uh, a guarantee. He gives life applications for people to apply, okay? And if somebody, it says, you know, if you do this, then your house will be strong, we'll say, okay? If you do this, then your rafters won't uh, collapse on you. Well, things do happen. It snows and the rafters collapse anyway, or you get a tornado and the house blows down. It is not a guarantee. And that's why when you get to word of faith preachers that say, if you do this, you're going to be blessed, they're misleading the flock because there are times where people really suffer, as we saw just when we opened today. We've got very faithful Christians that are um, Graham in Scotland. We've got Lisa in Australia. We've got, um, uh, what's his name, uh, Doug over in uh, Ireland, and then the people that I mentioned here in the U.S., and every one of them is a very faithful Christian. They love the Lord, they read their Bible, they do the things that the Bible recommends, and they have trials. And each one of us has that as well. We have to remember that bad things happen to good people. It happened to Paul. I mean, he was in prison, he was beaten, he was shipwrecked, he was this and this, and the list went on and on of the things that happened to him and the things that the book of Acts records. And yet he was as faithful as he could be. He loved the Lord. And in the end, which is not recorded in the Bible, but it is recorded in church history, is he ended up getting executed for his faith in Christ. Okay? So, we, there is not a guarantee in the things of Proverbs. There is not a guarantee when Paul says, um, oh, I'll talk about it on Sunday. I won't even get into that one. As God made man, and as God gave us the Bible for our instruction, the best route to, is to always apply its precepts to our lives. If we can do that things will generally go well. Um, what does it say? Um, uh, ben Franklin, I was thinking about it this morning. Early to bed, early to rise makes a healthy, wealthy, and wise. That's right. Is that a guarantee? You get up early, go to bed early, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise? Of course not. It's a, a, basically a proverb. It's He's giving you advice and he's saying, if you do these things, they, I get up early every single day. I'm up usually without the clock by 3.40, okay? And I uh, go to bed, everybody knows. As soon as I leave here, I'll go home, I'll do the videos, and I'll be in bed before I'm actually in bed. I'll be asleep before my head hits the pillow. I'm still waiting to be healthy, I'm still waiting to be wealthy, and I'm certainly waiting to be wise. But it's not a guarantee, but it is something that, I guess I'm pretty healthy. I don't know, it's, uh, we'll, we'll skip the first one. Okay, anyway, 7.29. Um, but this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. This verse is generally taken to mean that Paul thought of the coming of the Lord as right around the corner, and that the expectation for a long and normal life before his coming was unlikely. Although that is possible, it is not the only explanation and it dismisses his words of verse 26, which speak of the present distress. Concerning his words here, with that in mind, a more probable view of what he is speaking of comes to light. He begins with, but I say brethren. 
He continues with the idea that his words are directed to brethren, meaning saved believers. That's correct. It doesn't exclude that his words could be applied to unbelievers, but his concern is to those in the fellowship. For them, they need to consider that the time is short. The word he uses is sunestalamenos, which means contracted or drawn up as if in a narrow space. It is a word which is elsewhere used in the act of furling a sail. It goes from being a large open sheet to a condensed roll, which takes up very little space. So is Paul referring to the expected return of the Lord or of the present distress that he mentioned earlier? Because he has already referred to the distress of the moment, it seems unlikely that he would suddenly jump to the return of the Lord without specifically stating this as a reason for his coming admonition. He isn't going to re he isn't going to refer to the coming of the Lord specifically until chapter 11 of this book. And that is in the context of what do we talk about the coming of the Lord in the context of what? 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We do it every week. The Lord's Supper. That's the context of what he's speaking of. That's right. I, we remember the Lord's death until he comes. Okay. When he speaks in detail about his coming, it will be in chapter 15. This will be after countless admonitions for the conduct of life, even a long life ahead. Now, you know, in chapter 15 of 1 Corinthians, which I feel like just stopping and reading it right now, it's such an exciting passage. He talks about as a matter of fact, one year, and I, I'll have to do this again because it wasn't recorded. We were out on the beach, and on the Resurrection Day sermon, all I did was read 1 Corinthians 15 and evaluate it off the top of my head. And it's such a marvelous passage. I'm not going to do it because we're going to get there eventually. We're in chapter 7, so we'll be there in a couple weeks. But it is such a wonderful passage. I, I, I have to tell you that, and that's where he speaks about the coming of the Lord. And, you know, behold, I show you a mystery. We're not all going to... Uh, sleep, but we will all be changed. And it, it's just what a great passage. That's where he really deals with the return of the Lord. Chapter 11 is in the context of the Lord's Supper. And as I said, this will be after countless admonitions for the conduct of life, even a long life ahead. So he's not referring to the coming of the Lord. The time is near. Okay. Therefore, the probability strongly suggests that Paul's words are intended for those in Corinth who were facing a high degree of uncertainty because of the conditions around them, and they would therefore point to the same for anyone living in a time of exceptional turmoil. So if you have a time of turmoil, like, you know, uh, America gets attacked tomorrow, then you have to consider, how am I going to advise the young people that aren't married yet? Or how am I going to advise these people that are in this type of situation or that that he is referring to here? If this is the state of things in the world around the believer, he says that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. That's his words. Without considering the words of the coming verses, what he says here could be misunderstood to mean that no regard should be given to one's wife. That is not his intent, as will be seen. Rather, he is saying that the attitude of clinging to one's wife in the hopes of a long and prosperous marriage isn't recommended. Because of the present distress, one should understand that the wife may be taken away suddenly through whatever the distress is. And we don't know. He doesn't identify it. It could be plague. It could be famine. It could be war. It could be persecution. He's not specific. They ask the question, what about this distress? And he's giving them advice. So if it's plague, there are people dying all over the place. So be it. And so this is the context of what he's thinking, and this is a guide for us in the church age, okay? 
in such a difficult time, clinging to the marriage as if it were a long and permanent arrangement could certainly lead to heartache and bitterness. And so that's what's going on there. Life application. Can we help you? Now leave that on the door, please. There we go. <laughs> we got a, a package delivery and, and so uh, I, I leave that on the door so that the UPS guy will take it and do what I want him to do with it. But he didn't do it today, which tells me that he's not going to do it at all. So the package will probably go down to the depot and they'll give you two days to pick it up or something. So we'll see what happens. Anyway, how are you today, Miss Garrett? You're looking very beautiful. <laughs> She's got a gray shirt on, which always I love seeing that. Beautiful. Anyway, um, uh, the context of the times is important when understanding biblical applications. As I said, the five basic rules of hermeneutics, we all need to remember those. Is, is it descriptive? Is it prescriptive? And context? Context and context. That's right. And in the context, he's talking about the times that he is living in, the location that they're in, and something that's going on. You have to keep things in context or you have a... Pretext. pretext that's right if it's not in context you rip that verse out of its context then it is a lie and so you want to make sure that always the context is maintained if you take something out of context then you will inevitably be leading people down a wrong uh, what's called a hermeneutic the interpretation of the bible and you don't want to do that you want them to take it in the context in which it's in so um i'll read that again we are to enjoy the things god has blessed us with but if we assume that the life we live today will be the same on the morrow, we may find bitterness and disappointment. It would be unwise to expect a good job, a stable family, and a garage full of nice toys during a time of economic collapse. Context is important when evaluating life, just as it is when evaluating the Bible. And in fact, the Bible is giving us the context about that context so that we can keep our life okay we've got a distress we knew this was going to come on us eventually america cannot keep going on the path that it's going we're going to have a distress where do we turn to find out what to do we turn to paul and he gives us advice about our marriage he gives us advice about how we conduct our lives when we're being persecuted by people that are not christians and it's getting worse and it's getting worse and it's getting worse every day in america it's in Canada, it's in Australia, it is all over the place where things are getting worse and the Bible will tell us the context. How do we conduct our lives during those times? If the Lord doesn't come first, which I certainly hope he does, I'd like him to come right now, but if he doesn't come and these things happen, we have to be able to be ready. And the only way to do that is to know your Bible and you have to take it in the proper context. So there you go, verse 30. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Let me go back and read 29 so you know what he's saying. But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, even those who have wives should be as though they had none. Those who weep as though they did not weep. Those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Those who buy as though they did not possess. And though, uh, that's the end of that verse right there. So those who buy as though they did not possess. Okay. This verse continues the same thought analyzed in the previous one. To get clarity, we can take the first portion of that verse and apply his words to this portion. So I'm just going to condense and cut out the part that we read from the previous verse. Okay, it would say, but this I say, brethren, the time is short so that from now on, those who weep as though they did not weep, those who rejoice as they did not rejoice, those who buy as though they did not possess. What Paul meant by the time is short was discussed just a minute ago in the preceding verse. 
And because of that reason, he admonishes those who weep as though they did not weep. It is nearly impossible for us to drown out all emotion. But you know me, if I give a sermon, especially on Resurrection Day, I hope I don't do it, but I quite often lose it because I just, uh, I get, a, I'm an emotional person. But our emotions can be subdued because of the difficulties which surround us at any given time. In war, a soldier may lose his best friend and not shed a tear, knowing that there isn't time for tears when bullets are coming his way. It may be that he doesn't mourn his dead friends until after he returns home from battle, or by then he may have completely suppressed the difficulties. I knew a guy, uh, the building that I bought down the road years ago when I had the store, he was a World War II veteran, and he was in his 80s at the time. If he's still alive, he's in his 90s or higher. And he would not speak a word about his time over in, he was in uh, uh, Germany, he was a foot soldier over there, and he, he wouldn't say a word about it. He says, I don't want to talk about it. He was still suppressing it, and that was what, in the, was in the 90s, so that's 50 years later. He could not talk about the things that he saw and that occurred to him. Some people write books about it. They, they can process things completely differently. Then there's been a lot of wonderful books written about some of the battles by people that were able to do that, but some people cannot. And they won't talk about the people they lost. They won't talk about the horrors that they saw. And they've taken that and they have just buried it inside of them. And I don't know how you can carry a load like that, but people do. Uh, this is true to a varying degree with any emotional trauma when the surrounding circumstances of, are of a most difficult nature. Paul saw the circumstances of those in Corinth as necessitating the need to not weep over such temporary things. In the same manner, he admonished those who rejoice as though they did not rejoice. Again, there may be times when giving out a joyful or triumphant shout may not be appropriate. Uh, Solomon says, in the Proverbs, he says that the person who hails his neighbor too loudly in the morning will be despised by him. I think that's a bit of a misquote, but you, there's times when you don't, you know, go out and make a big shouting noise. And in Ecclesiastes 3, he goes through, there's a time for this, and there's a time for that, and there's a time for this, and there's a time for that, right? He goes through the entire thing, and then what happened? The birds made it a song in the 1960s. So uh, let's read it really quickly, seeing as how we're there. Ecclesiastes, I think it's, I said three, I hope I'm right. Anyway, um, Ezra, Nehemiah, Psalm, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Hold on one sec here. Yeah, chapter three. To everything, there is a season and a time for a time for every purpose under heaven. I started to sing the song instead of reading the Bible. A time to be born and a time to die, a time to plant and a time to pluck what is planted, a time to kill and a time to heal, a time to break down and a time to build up, a time to weep and a time to laugh a time to mourn and a time to dance, a time to cast away stones and a time to gather stones, a time to embrace and a time to refrain from embracing, a time to gain and a time to lose, a time to keep and a time to throw away, which is every spring. I did that just about three weeks ago, throwing stuff away, a time to tear and a time to sow, a time to keep silence and a time to speak, a time to love and a time to hate, a time of war, and a time of peace. So there you go. That's Solomon's condensed idea of what you're supposed to do throughout life. There's a time for this and there's a time for that. And obviously he's inspired by the Lord. And so the Lord understands that we have these things in our life and we need to do that. So um, let's see here. If a battle is won, but there was immense loss in human life on the side of the victors, 
Is there any true reason to rejoice? Rather, it would be more appropriate to humbly and gratefully acknowledge those who had given their lives for the cause. If a football team were to win a game in which a player had died on either team, would it be appropriate for the winners to rejoice? No, it would be a time of acknowledgement that a tragedy had occurred. And finally, in this verse, Paul says that because of the present situation, those who buy should act as though they did not possess. If one is living in a time of great upheaval, where anarchy filled the streets, would it be wise to go to the store and buy a new TV and then revel in that great new purchase? No, it would be more likely that the TV would be stolen very soon, the house ransacked and even destroyed, and the owners forced to live from moment to moment in a state of terror and privation. It would make no sense to grab the TV as the rioters were banging at the door, holding fast to it as if it would be of use later. There was some distress at the time of Paul's letters to those in Cor- letter to those in Corinth, and Paul wanted to save them from what he knew would be pointless emotion. He was asking them to keep calm, be level in their feelings and attitudes, and to understand that this world is temporary and it is passing away. And the same should be true with each one of us in some measure at all times. The more we cling to this world, the less we cling to Christ. This world is a world of uncertainty. It's a world of distress. It's a world of loss. To overly hold on to it can only lead to increased unhappiness at some future point. It's just the way it is. The more we hold on to this world, when this world takes those things away from us, we will be very unhappy. I know people that love each other very much as husband and wife. Lots of people like that. And the ones that understand that the Lord is sovereign over their lives will be okay when they lose their husband or wife, even if it's after 30 years of marriage or 50 years of marriage or 100 years of marriage. But the people that cling to each other and don't put the Lord first when that person is gone will be miserable. They'll say, why has God done this to me? Everybody dies. Everybody dies. Everybody has loss in this life, and we have to be ready for it. The more we cling to the things of this life, even people we love, the more, you know, I remember listening to Paul Harvey. Oh, my goodness. Uh, uh, I was in Japan at the time. He used to give the rest of the story, and he gave a rest of the story, and it's always bothered me. He talked about the guy in the girl. I don't remember the names, but they fell in love, and they spent every minute they could together. They work, and at work, he would walk down and have lunch with her. They were always together, and she died. And I don't remember the outcome of the story. I've actually suppressed it. But I remember what a heartbreak thing because that's all that he had to live for was her. Instead of living for Christ and understanding that she was a gift of God, she almost became his God. And I just, it broke my heart. Like I said, I don't even remember the outcome of it. I think, I think that he killed himself. But anyway, the rest of the story, it was one of those heartbreaking ones he did from time to time. And it's just I just remember thinking how sad that was, that somebody had made such an idol of their spouse. And don't get me wrong, I love Hidako. We're almost up to 35 years, but there's a time where one of us is going to not be there for the other, unless we both go at the same time. I can't imagine, you know, whatever. It's a a fact of life, and we have to be ready for that. So anyway, um, if our hearts, this life application, if our hearts, minds, and thoughts are always directed toward Jesus, 
we will be more prepared for tr times of trial, sadness, loss, and even an appropriate response to joyful times. If he, if Jesus Christ is our ultimate prize and hope, then the things of the world will necessarily be put into the proper perspective. Let us always and in all things put him first. And I say that because Christ is the, begins with C, ends with creator. Anybody? He's the creator, okay? Therefore, he is the source of all joy. He's the source of all happiness. And so anything that we've, and I think I'm going to say this either in this sermon or next week's sermon. I, I get these things into my head and I can't remember. But anyway, if we really love something in this life of ours, I love the smell of that jasmine. I love the smell of this. You have to remember that he created that jasmine for us to enjoy. And therefore, the enjoyment we get from that jasmine is only a portion a teeny insignificant portion of the joy that we find in him because he created those things to work as they are. And the things that we find offensive, he does for a reason. If we go near a dead animal that's, you know, obviously a couple days old, if we get near it, we can get sick. And so he's made it where it's repulsive to us. But then little bugs eat that animal and that is their food and it won't make them sick because everything works according to his wisdom. And those little bugs will run away from something else. Everything finds its place in the creator. And I'm giving good and I'm giving bad so you understand that everything came from him. His wisdom developed the world that we live in. And so when we find joy in something, we need to say, thank you, God, for that. You pass by, uh, you know, you're walking on a concrete sidewalk and there's a little impossible impossible to happen. A little flower pops out in its beautiful yellow flower in the middle of a crack in the middle of a busy street. And you think, Lord, thank you. He did that just for whatever reason. That flower came out there and I happen to see it. That's the kind of thing we should thank the Lord for because he is the creator of all things. He's way better than that flower. He even made the uh, parable in one of the gospels. He says, you know, uh, Solomon in all of his splendor wasn't arrayed like one of these. And yet this is going to die and it's going to be cast into the fire. It's, you know, we look at how beautiful a flower is and the bouquet gets thrown away a little bit later. Keep your hope in Christ. Everything stems from him and therefore everything that is good is only a reflection of his infinite goodness. Verse 31. And those who use this world as not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. This verse finishes the thought analyzed in the previous two verses. Again, to get clarity, we can take the first portion and apply his words to this final section. It would thus read as, But this I say, brethren, the time is short, so that from now on, dot, 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 those who use this world are not misusing it, for the form of this world is passing away. For this final portion of the thought, Paul says that those who use this world should use it as not misusing it. Thus, this is speaking of the excess of life that can so easily ensnare us. We live in the world and must use the things of the world to continue to exist. That's reality. But we are not to allow them to become our prime focus or center of hope and contentment. Instead, we are to continually reevaluate our state and remember that those things we use and possess all came from the Creator and they are temporary, as is our very body. All these things are passing away. But there is a greater and eternal hope for those who have called on Christ. If our lives are filled with the lust of the world, then we have shown that this world is our desire 
and that God is less important to us than this world. John speaks of this exact thought, along with the transitory nature of the world, in his first epistle. Let me take you to 1 John chapter 2, where he says this. Oh, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world is passing away, and the lust of it. But he who does the will of God abides forever. And if you notice there, he says the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life. He takes the exact three things that caused Adam to fall in Genesis chapter 3 in that order, and he speaks about them there in John. He's reminding you of the fall. He's reminding you of the absolute beauty that surrounded Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden, a place with something that we can't even comprehend at this point in our existence. They had it, and instead of looking to the Lord and enjoying what he had given them, the lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life destroyed it. And so that's what John recommends there in accord with what Paul says right here. Those things around us which seem fixed and firm are not. Even the mountains erode and can be leveled through a large cataclysm. Matter of fact, I was watching something on uh, uh, one of these, you know, when Hidako is cooking, I always click on like five minute videos because I, I finish up my work and I know she's going to have dinner ready in 10 minutes. And so I don't get it started on anything. We don't watch a lot of TV, but I'll click on these five minute videos. And one of them was a place in Italy and it was on a river and it was this giant cataclysm. An entire mountainside slipped down. What they had done is they had put a, um, what do you call it, a, a dam on the river. And so the waterers made this big lake. And what happened is this mountain, they didn't figure that this mountain was absorbent. It wasn't rock. It was some type of what we'll call it clay or whatever, chalk. I don't know what it was. But this mountain sucked up all of this water and it became unstable to the point where it collapsed and it went down into the river and it caused one of the greatest disasters in their history. I'd never even heard of it before, but it wiped out an entire village. Everything that was there died. And so, you know, mountains collapse as well as uh, other things. And we can't count on even the mountains. They erode. They can be leveled through a large cataclysm, just like that. If such magnificent and seemingly permanent structures are temporary, how much more are those things that we possess? The terminology for that which is passing away calls to mind the fleeting scenes of a movie. Our eyes take in the information and our brains process it, but it is actually gone from, from before us as soon as the next, next scene comes. It's nothing but a memory. This is exactly what Solomon speak of, speaks of in Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Let me take you there really quickly. He says in Ecclesiastes chapter 1, he says, uh, whoops. Vanity of vanities, says the preacher, vanity of vanities, all is vanity. He's telling you, everything around us is just, the word there, vanity, is the same word as the name where Abel came from, Hevel. And I explained this a couple weeks ago. Vanity of vanities, Hevel, Hevelim. It means breath, simply breath. When you breathe and you watch it disappear on a cold day, that is what Solomon is speaking of there. Everything is just breath that disappears right before your eyes. And so don't hold on to it because it's tempting. It's wonderful to think about the things of this world and all of a sudden they disappear and you've lost what you would put your hope in.
The word, oh, here it is right here. The word for vanity in this verse is havel. It literally means vapor or breath. Solomon warns that just as exhaled breath on a cold morning quickly disappears, so is the sudden disappearance of the world around us. I should read my notes before I come in here, but I don't. Anyway, everything is fleeting except God. You know, the old song by Kansas, um, uh, dust in the wind, everything is dust in the wind. And then they say, uh, uh, only the earth and the sky don't fade away. I know that's a misquote of it, but anyway, nothing, something, the earth and sky, even that's wrong. The earth and the sky will fade away. Okay, so Kansas got it wrong. Because this is so, we are admonished to call on him and then remember him now while we still have the chance. Someday all things will be made new for those who have called on Christ. It will be an entirely different order and one which will endure for all eternity. Life application. Don't get so caught up in this temporary world that you miss the greater and eternal world to come. Don't miss out on Christ. And that's not just for unbelievers to call on Christ and to be partaking in what he has offered. That's also for believers. Because as we're going to see, we've already seen once, we're going to, oh, no, we haven't. I'm thinking of 2 Corinthians 3. Anyway, he's going to speak about rewards and losses. So even believers, we can fall away. We can go back to the world and we can, you know, stop pursuing God, stop reading his word, stop talking to him throughout the day, praying to him at night, fellowshipping with other believers. We can stop those things. And the only one that will suffer when we stand before Christ, we're not going to lose our salvation but we will lose our rewards because he said, you know, you put the world ahead of me. I redeemed you. I saved you. You called on me and you spent the rest of your life frittering it away. It's pointless. Okay. And as Peter says in uh, 2 Peter 1 verse 9, he says that there are people that can actually forget that they were saved. They forget that they have been washed from their past sins. He doesn't call into question their salvation, but he says they've forgotten. He said, and then he gives the logical way of not having that happen by increasing your knowledge by increasing your love by increasing your brotherly uh fraternal uh what's the word there uh fraternity with your brothers and he goes through the steps we won't go through it now but anyway he tells you the process to keep from forgetting that you were cleansed from your past sins so verse 732 <clears throat> but i want you to be without care still speaking to the people of the current distress he who is unmarried cares for the things of the world, how he may please the Lord. Okay? This verse finishes the thought analyzed in the preceding two. I'm sorry, I'm, verse 732 is what I just read. In this verse, Paul reverts back to his words of verse 28, which said, Nevertheless, such will have trouble in the flesh, but I would spare you. After that came the intervening verses to build upon that thought, and then this verse, which begins with a confirmation that he has their best in mind, and his words are now intended not as commands, but as heartfelt words of counsel, as if a father to his children. And so he begins with, but I want you to be without care. If they will follow this exhortation, they will spare themselves trials and sadness that he is sure coming because of the present distress. That's verse 26. And so to live without care, he tells them as an explanation that he, this is his words, he who is unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. This was his personal state, and he knew it to be true. The man who is unmarried, particularly in times of distress, is not distracted by the marital issues which can complicate one's life in many ways. 
and which inevitably will cause minds to be distracted from a clear and unhindered relationship with the Lord. In contrast to this will come his words in the next verse, which will be looked at separately. Life application. Life happens. The more responsibilities we have, the easier it is to get distracted from a single-minded devotion to the Lord. This is particularly true when close relationships are involved. Having a spouse, children, or other family members to care for can cause our minds to be consumed with those details, leaving less time for pursuing Jesus. This does not mean being in such relationships is wrong, and he never makes that case. But if the world around us is in the middle of a time of great distress, it would be better to consider not getting into overly burdensome relationships during such a time. Okay, I know that all of this right now doesn't apply to our walk with the Lord. We're in a time of prosperity in America. We're in a time when things are going pretty well. There's a lot of, you know, divide between the political parties and even between, you know, uh, Christians. But despite that, it's, it's a time of blessing. We're really prosperous in this nation. But that may end. And understanding where to go to remind yourself of these lessons is really important because it may come. You know, we've had a couple economic collapses in the past 20 years, I think three of them. And we're bound to have another one. I mean, all it takes is just one glitch on Wall Street and that can happen. Or what was it, Lehman Brothers last time? I don't remember what they did, but they caused the whole world to go into financial collapse. And so we have to be ready because we don't know what's coming. So that's my recommendation on that is just keep the Lord first. Verse 33, but he who is married cares about the things of the world, how he may please his wife. Let's see here. This verse is set in contrast to the preceding one, which read, he was unmarried cares for the things of the Lord, how he may please the Lord. When one is single, and if they are directed to the things of the Lord, they will naturally care for doing those things which are pleasing to him. However, the contrast is also usually the case. And so Paul notes it for our reflection by saying, but he who is married cares about the things of the world. This doesn't mean such a person isn't interested in pleasing the Lord at all, but his allegiances may be skewed, especially during times of distress. Even if such times don't currently exist, a man may still need to provide for his wife and keep her happy and content. But he can usually do it in a way in which both will be able to direct their lives towards pleasing the Lord. They can attend church together, they can pray over meals, they can talk about the Lord's goodness on walks and so on. However, if it is a time of distress, the man may become overly consumed with how he, as Paul says, may please his wife. If food is in shortage, the man will spend a great deal of effort in obtaining it in order to feed his beloved and any children they have. Going to church may become a secondary matter as the time once available for that is lost in the struggle to live. Now, I'll tell you something. Irma came through here two years ago in September, and I needed to get something from the store. I don't remember what it was, and I walked in. It was the one over here on Beneva and uh, Clark. And I thought, well, it was something really that nobody would need during a storm. I think it was bleach, you know, and I just, I, I wanted to get it. And that store was empty. There wasn't even bleach left. And that was just with a little hurricane coming in. Imagine, and remember the, all the gas was gone, all the stations had shut down. Imagine that going on for weeks and weeks and weeks. How are you going to feed yourself? 
How are you going to take care? Of, how are you going to take care of your kids? You know, unless you have guns to shoot little birds, where are you going to get your food? Because the stores may not have food in them. And the way that people are, when you're in a store, you may buy it and walk out of the store and be robbed anyway. I mean, we, you just don't know. I don't mean to scare anybody, but this is the reality of the world in which we live. We see it all the time. Things go bad, and in just a very short time, things devolve to a point where people can no longer function in a normal way. It's very quick that it happens. And I mean, it was it was still a couple of days before the storm. I just, I can't remember what, but I think it was bleach. And you figure nobody's going to be buying bleach before a storm. And the whole storm, everything was empty. So there you go. And finding time to stop and praise the Lord in times of privation is naturally harder. This doesn't mean that love for the Lord is gone, but priorities become skewed during times of upheaval. How much more difficult is it to please the Lord when there are many additional burdens upon the man's heart which he feels he must handle? Life application. As has been noted over the previous verses, the context of the times in which a person lives is important to consider when pondering life-changing decisions, such as marriage or having children. This is why it is often good to stop and evaluate such decisions rationally and apart from emotions which tug at our heartstrings. So there you go with that. We've done a lot of verses today. We're just whipping through them. Um, you know, I keep seeing, and I've seen it time and time again over the past couple of months, is that young people are saying, we're not going to have children because of guess what reason? Well, that's one of them. There's something even more specific, though. Global warming. And I think they have no idea what they're talking about. Global, we're not going to have children because we don't want to increase global warming. And overpopulation is another one of them because the two to them go hand in hand. They don't know what distress is and they have no idea of what they're talking about. You know, if you're not going to have children, you need to have a decent reason for it. And it is not something that they've been proclaiming now for 30 years is going to happen in 22 and then 2012. And then somebody said in four more years, it was, who was it? John Kerry or something this week says, we got three more years. So there's going to be no more ice. Mm -hmm. They're just crazy. Anyway, 734. There is a difference between a wife and a virgin. The unmarried woman carries about the things of the Lord that she, she may be holy in both body and in spirit. But she who is married carries about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. I, th I think I said married the first time. It's the unmarried. The unmarried woman carries about the things of the Lord. Anyway, in the same manner as there is a difference between the unmarried and the married man concerning focus on the Lord and proper allegiances to him, there's also a difference in the case of women. Paul notes that there is a difference between a wife and a virgin, meaning a female virgin. He's not at all speaking about the physical difference, but the same difference noted among men from the previous two verses as he next explains. The unmarried woman cares about the things of the Lord. When a believer is unmarried, she may, she may have a much better opportunity to keep her mind and thoughts on the Lord. Their actions will be directed towards him alone and their spiritual life will be filled with him as well. Because of this, she may be holy both in body and in spirit. Paul's words there. Regardless of the surroundings, even in a time of certain distress, her actions will be directed toward him. On the other hand, Paul notes the contrast which is found in women, married women, by beginning with the word but. But she who is married cares about the things of the world, how she may please her husband. 
when a woman marries, she is bound to her husband and will naturally set her affections on him. We would hope that's the case at least. Anyway, in times of distress, this may be even more so. The cares of their marriage, the thought of losing him and the separations which might arise may consume her mental and emotional strength and even debilitate her physically. When this occurs, she's no longer focusing on the Lord as much as the virgin would be. Having said this, Paul is not in any way saying to not marry, nor is he saying that there is anything wrong with marriage. He is speaking to those in Corinth at a time when there is a present distress, as was noted again in verse 26. That distress, whatever it may have been, could only increase the troubles and trials associated with the marriage. A good example of the divided allegiances that result in such an instance is found in the sisters Martha and Mary. One was worried about many things when Jesus was in the house. At the same time, Mary was content to sit and listen to Jesus. The account is found in Luke 10, and it is a great example of what Paul is relaying concerning the issue of marriage, even though it isn't specifically speaking of marriage there. Martha, like the married woman, was concerned with the many things, and her priorities reflected that. And the other one was focused on the Lord. Let's, let's read it. Luke chapter 10. Luke 10. Let's see here. Uh, now it happened as they, Luke 10, yes, as they, uh, where was I? It happened as they went that he entered a certain village and a certain woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. And she had a sister called Mary who sat at Jesus' feet and heard his word. But Martha was distracted with much serving. She's acting like a wife, right? Or the, the what do you call it, of the house, the whatever term you use. And distracted with much serving and she approached him and said, Lord, do you not care that my sister has left me to serve alone? Therefore, tell her to help me. And Jesus answered and said to her, Martha, Martha, you're worried and troubled about many things, but one thing is needed. And Mary has chosen that good part, which will not be taken from her. There you go. Good stuff. Life application. What is your priority? Are you following Christ, reading his word and listening to the prompting of the spirit in your life? Or are you being distracted by many things and allowing them to shut his presence out of this one life that he has granted you before you stand before him? Make sure to spend this valuable time wisely. Spend it with Christ. Time is fleeting and the days go so fast. And yet there is so much more for me to do. But when the sun is setting and the day is past, I look back and I see I spent too little time with you. And so I commit to spending more time with you on the morrow. Surely I will do better when the sun rises anew. But at the end of the next day, again, I'm filled with sorrow. I failed again, O Lord, to spend precious time with you. O God, give me a wise and discerning heart. Grant me the resolve to open your word as I should do and to walk with you and talk with you. Yes, help me to start to spend my quickly fle fleeting life in sincere fellowship with you. Verse 735, and this I say for your own profit, not that I may put a leash on you, but for what is proper and that you may serve the Lord without distinction, or I'm sorry, without distraction. Paul's words, and this I say, is referring to the instructions on marriage that he's been giving from verses 25 through 34. In this, he, 
his words were for your own profit. Explained differently, what he has said is advice which is meant to help those in Corinth and to assist them in their thinking about the issue. Remember, in verse 26, he wrote of the present distress which they were facing. As a person who understood the complexities of the times and was able to process them in a valid Christian context, his words were intended as general guides for a sound life through that distress. This is certain that the words are only recommendations and not directives because he next says that it was not that I may put a leash on you. The word translated as leash is the Greek word brochon. This is its only time that it's used in scripture and it implies a noose or a snare or a cord which is used to restrain something or someone. The gist of his words then are that he's not intending to bind them with a man-made rule and thus add to the gospel of freedom which is found in Christ nor to bind them from anything lawful within the society which didn't contradict the gospel, but rather his intent was to provide sound, helpful, and fatherly advice for, the wealth, for their welfare. In contrast to such an overreaching command, Paul simply wanted them to consider, as he says, what is proper in order that you, again, that you may serve the Lord without distraction. His intent then was solely for their good during the present distress. And his words are not to be considered directives for any time at any point of the church age. They're not directives, they're exhortations and they're recommendations. Rather, in times of upheaval and distress, believers should be able to go to Paul's words and determine a sound course of action that will keep them from trials and heartache and yet be able to serve the Lord fully and without additional burdens, which could take away that full devotion. Life application. Again, we see the importance of context. Reading a single verse and applying it without context inevitably leads to crummy doctrine. But by checking the context of what is given, we can be certain that we are on the right path in our walk and in good stead with the Lord. Verse 736. Let's see here. Burke, you're awful quiet tonight. I've never seen you so quiet. Okay. All right. If you got something on your mind, just speak out. We're here. Uh, verse 736. But if any man thinks he is behaving improperly towards his virgin, if she is past the flower of youth, and thus it must be, let him do what he wishes. He does not sin. Let them marry. Okay, here we go. It is generally agreed that this verse is speaking of a man who is responsible for a virgin daughter or who otherwise has the charge and responsibility over the young woman. There is an age where she will naturally be inclined to want the company of a man, even if there is a time of distress in the world. Just because there may be, it doesn't change the natural process of her life. Eventually, she will be tempted to express those desires if she is not allowed to marry. The one in charge of her should understand this and may eventually feel that his care of her, even if it is for her own good, may cause her to sin if he doesn't allow her to get married. And so when she reaches or exceeds that point by becoming, as he says, past the flower of her youth, Paul says he, he may do what he wishes by giving her away in marriage. Remember the context, there's times of distress. That's what we're talking about. It's more preferable to do this than it would be to restrict her from marriage and eventually cause her to act on her natural impulses in a sinful way. Obviously, the world is different today and parents don't exercise the same control over their children as they once did. 
The custom of prearranged marriages is all but over, and instead the decision is left up to the one marrying. Now that's in America. There are places still in the world today that arrange marriages. You see it quite often, you know, if you read social media and you people arrange marriages. But India. India does it. A lot of countries in Africa do it. Um, you know, they're, they're just places, you know, and then if you get a dowry for the daughter, then you're tempted to keep that tradition alive. And I mean, whatever. So I'm talking about America and, you know, our situation here, but this is not uncommon in the world today. All right. Now, however, even under the best of circumstances, parents may agree to the marriage, but there's little control exercised by them over who and when of it. I brought up the example of, uh, uh, what was it, a fiddler on the roof here last week or two weeks ago, and how that poor guy went through that with three different daughters. He's supposed to be the guy that decides the husband for her uh, daughter, and I remember one of them was this old guy, and it's like, I want to marry your daughter, and he's like, okay, and then come to find out he couldn't because she's fallen in love with somebody, which is totally contrary to their custom. The guy that wanted to marry her is angry at him now because you're supposed to give me his daughter, and Oh, the poor guy went through, he pulling out his hair over three daughters. The world was changing that he lived in, and he was not accommodating to it very well. So it's a wonderful story. It's a great, great movie. If you ever get a chance to watch it, how, you know, the society changed, and he no longer had the control that he should have had. And what a nice guy. Anybody here see that movie? Oh, a couple over again. Over. Yeah, over and over they said it's it's just such a it's such a touching movie. You know the the very last scene where the daughter that marries the Christian guy and she says bye. I think she called him Papa or Daddy, whatever. Bye, Papa. And he kind of turned around and he wouldn't say goodbye to her. It's just heartbreaking. Anyway, that's what they went through. Um, regardless of this, whether it is the arranging of a marriage or simply the nod of consent to it. If the girl is of marrying age and his approval is given, he does not sin. Instead, Paul says it is okay, let them marry. Again, all of this is based on the present distress, which was referred to in verse 26 and has been cited as a general guideline for such an instance. For the past 2,000 years, marriages have continued as normal during the time that the church awaits the return of Christ. Life application, marriage has been ordained by God. Likewise, the urges and desires for marriage were instilled in us by God. It is better to marry than to sin against him by engaging in sex apart from marriage. And so even in times of distress, the situation and circumstances of marriage must be carefully considered for the good of all involved. Verse 37, nevertheless, he who stands steadfast in his heart having no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. These words are set in contrast to what he just said in the previous verse. It is assumed from these verses and known from the customs of the times that the father had control over his daughter's marriage decisions. Unlike the world today, where young people fall in love and decide who they will marry, those in the Roman Empire were simply told who they would marry and when. It might be that in the afternoon, a father would come home and say, tomorrow, you will marry a man that I met today. Arranged marriages were the standard. They were not the exception. Paul noted previously that the father did not sin if he allowed his virgin daughter to marry. And now he introduces the contrast by saying, nevertheless, what was said is acceptable, but there is another point to consider. 
and all of it is based on the present distress already noted. Because of this difficulty, he who stands steadfast in his heart has no necessity, but has power over his own will, and has so determined in his heart that he will keep his virgin, does well. That's Paul's words. By withholding marriage from his virgin daughter, he is doing well because he will keep her from the great troubles which were expected at this time of distress. Someone had to tend to her, be it him or a new husband, because she was already in the home and because there was no external need to marry her off, they could ride this time of distress through together without causing sin. The idea here is that if keeping her from marrying would cause her to be tempted to the point of losing her virginity, then it would be sin. If this wasn't the case, then they were doing well by having not married her off. Life application. Paul's words continuously show his regard for purity, holiness, and keeping sin at bay. If we can learn from his examples and his words of instruction, how much easier will our lives be and how much more pleasing to the Lord will be our walk? 738. Gosh, we've done a lot of verses today. They're short though. The commentaries are short, but it's a lot of verses. So then, he who gives her in marriage does well, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. Having stated his instructions on the giving of one's virgin in marriage, Paul sums the thought up in this verse beginning with, so then he who gives her in marriage does well. He's not erred in his actions nor sinned against God by them. He has given a wife to a husband and his virgin to a man for her care and protection. Even if this were during a time of distress, no wrongdoing has occurred. Having said that, Paul then notes the contrast by saying, but he who does not give her in marriage does better. He cannot be speaking of better in a moral sense, because if so, then the other chosen path would have been morally deficient. The better moral path should always be chosen. Instead, better must refer to the issue of distress of the times. For the sake of the virgin, by withholding marriage, it would be a better expedient for the care of her heart and any possible sadness which might result from the challenges which lay ahead. Looking out for her does better. If he can take care of her, that is what he's referring to. It's not a moral decision. It's a decision for the care of his daughter and for hoping that she will not be hurt in the process. Like if she marries her off to a guy and the guy gets called up to be a soldier in war and he gets killed a week later, then he's caused trouble for her, right? That's what he's talking about. Something that is not a moral issue, but a life issue for her to deal with. Life application. If a path can be taken which avoids the pitfalls of heartache and sadness, it is certainly the better one to choose. Getting ourselves into trials and difficulties should naturally be avoided because we are then much more likely to have freedom to praise God instead of worrying about the trials which surround us. And we can take all of these things and we can lump them all into any aspect of life. He's talking about marriage, but whatever it is, if we have a situation in our life where we have to make a right decision on it because of our present distress or because economic or whatever, plague, famine, whatever, we take these precepts and we think them through just based on what he said about marriage and apply it to whatever part of our life, we're going to do well. It's the wisdom of God. As I say, uh, I think I said it in the commentary, the Hebrews commentary, either published or one that's coming, but um, uh, God made our bodies. He knows what this finger is for. He knows what the fingerprints on the finger are for. He knows what the nail is for. 
everything on us is something that he developed. And then what does he do? He gives us examples in the Bible of how we live our life. One of them is to walk properly before the Lord. He uses a physical thing that we do, walking, as a spiritual application. We're to conduct our lives properly before the Lord. But he uses the walking. Sometimes he uses the right arm. He says, the right arm of the Lord. What is he talking about? He's talking about the power. He speaks about the right hand of the Lord. He's talking about what? He's talking about the thing that accomplishes a task. It's not so much the power, it's something that does a task. And then the fingers, you know, he, the finger of the Lord is actually the etzba, which as I said in the sermon, I think a week or two ago, the etzba comes from the word seba, which means to uh, working on dying. And so you're accomplishing a task. So the finger is that which accomplishes a task. He uses all of these things. The nose, we got that coming up in a sermon with Balaam the prophet, uh, you know, um, uh, Numbers chapter 22. And you wouldn't read it in the English, but it says the Lord's nostril burned. And then later it says that Balaam's nostril burned. And what is he speaking about? We're huffing, we're puffing like a dragon. We're angry at something. So the nostril serves a purpose, a spiritual application, even though it's a physical thing that we do, breathing in and out. But when we get angry, we huff and puff, and he uses that. Whereas in the uh, the English, when we read it, it says the Lord was angry, or the Lord was, you know, whatever, and Balaam was this or that. You don't get the, the sense of it. But he made us, he knows the parts of our body. So when he uses them in a application in scripture, he's doing it because he understands how the body works. And I can use this to teach you a lesson to get through the thick heads that we have. So when you see something like that, think it's not just something I'm reading and I comprehend. It's something that the Lord has developed and he's teaching me something. There's something deeper than just reading something shallowly and saying, hey, I'll give you an example. Today, Sergio was uh, watching the news about the Mueller report. He was over in Israel, and he was just curious, curious about how it was going. And he emailed me, and he says, um, what does the word thud mean? He says that uh, the, they were talking on one of the news shows, and the two documents that were submitted uh, made a, a thud. And he said, what does that mean? And I said, well, what is a thud? I said, a thud is when you drop over dead. You go thud. You don't bounce. You don't make any noise. You just thud. Okay. So when you have something that says um, uh, those documents made a thud, it means the deal is dead. There's nothing to do with it. The issue is over. And he got that. It's an idiom. Well, the Lord is taking our physical body and all of these applications in here, marriage and all these other things, and he's giving us an understanding that he is the one that created us and because he created us and he knows what's best he uses those things to teach us including marriage including a virgin including a father that is responsible for the virgin that's what you have to keep thinking about when you're reading the bible it's not just something oh okay i understand the idiom and i'm going to read on why did he use that idiom why did he say the right arm or the right hand Sometimes he says the right arm of the lord is not too short sometimes he says the hand of the lord is and you think, why did he use the difference? Because he's teaching us something, okay? Not to belabor the point, but just pay attention when you're reading the Bible, the things that he says, especially in a well-translated Bible. Some Bibles will paraphrase things, and so you don't get any of the symbolism. But Paul will say, um, you know, uh, uh, the whole loaf is leavened, okay? Where somebody else might say that the loaf is puffed up, right? there's a difference. The leaven is because it's a picture of sin. And that, in turn, puffs up the bread. 
okay? So one translation may say it one way and you might not get what he's saying. So that's why it's always good to read different translations. Read two or three of them at a time. Go through the Bible as you're reading them and you will get a better grasp of it because some people will, they'll say, well, this means that. That's what's called dynamic equivalence. You've got a Bible and they are telling you what the words mean. But then you have what's called a literal translation. This says this, and therefore we're going to translate it exactly the same. In the Hebrew, when it speaks of a, the blade of a sword, does anybody know what the blade of a sword is called in Hebrew? Pecherev, the mouth of the sword. It doesn't say the edge of the sword. Well, if we read that, we really don't think about it. We wouldn't know what it's talking about. So they always do a dynamic equivalent, and they say, he killed him with the edge of the sword. But if you think about it, what does a mouth do? It devours. And so the sword is a devouring instrument. And if you have a double-edged sword, it's devouring both ways. It's eating everything around it. So to escape a double-edged sword has real meaning because you escaped being devoured, okay? So that's why I say when you're reading different translations of the Bible, you will always benefit because people are trying their best to convey to you what the Lord is saying. And some do a great job of paraphrasing it. Some do a great job of of giving you the idea of it, and then some do a great job of giving a literal translation, but then you have to think through what it means. So every Bible translation is going to do that to some extent. The more that you grasp what's going on, the better you're going to be in your comprehension of the Bible. Okay, let's go on. 739. Grasping what you say at like you say, Balaam. Balaam. Oh, yeah, I'm sorry. Balaam. I, I, I know. Well, however you pronounce it. But <laughs> his name is Balaam. B-A-L-A-A-M. Okay. It, it's like uh, uh, Rahab. 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 Yeah. Rahab. It's just because I'm studying it in Hebrew when I do the sermon. I know. And normally, when I'm reading it, I'll read it the way it's supposed to be. But once I've done it in a sermon, I can't I, I can't get it out of my head because I've, I've, I've been reading it and I've been processing it so long that whatever but uh i'll tell you when you get to uh somebody like um what's his name jeroboam i mean it's completely different you wouldn't know yeravam is his name what's a yeravam or uh another one uh, the guy uh jephthah we say it doesn't sound anything like that in hebrew iftah so you say what's an iftah right but it, it, it's hard to get that out of your head once it's in there because you've been studying it and you've been practicing it and so i try not to do that and if i do that i'm sorry just say, what are you talking about? I, I don't mean to do that to you. It just, it gets in there, especially because I'm in the Balaam sermons right now. I've been typing them for two weeks and I've got another two chapters. So it might be another six, seven, eight sermons. I don't know. But anyway, they'll be out in 10 weeks now, but they're typed. So, and I'm really struggling with Numbers 22. I, there's a picture being made there and I have not got it. So I, I it's going to be a long couple weeks. Every day I've been laying it all out and the Lord will provide or he won't. It's his word. So anyway, there you go. But I'm really struggling with the, what the picture is. I've got all the information, all of the verses analyzed. I know where the, the story is going, but the, the picture that he's making, there's two servants that are mentioned only one time. They're not mentioned anywhere else in all three chapters. The donkey is mentioned 14 times in one half of one chapter, and that's it. It's not mentioned anywhere else. Okay. Where does the word uh, come from? Uh, the, the, the donkey. It's the word um, atom. Okay, that comes from the word Ethan, which is, you know, somebody named Ethan. Okay, well, that's the Hebrew word, Ethan, which means perennial or flowing. That That's there for a reason, because he could have picked a different type of donkey. He didn't. He picked a female donkey. And so the Lord is making a picture for us. I'm struggling with it. So I, I, I'm consumed with it. The past couple of days, I have really gone to bed 
and just lay down and not even remember falling down or, or laying down. I'm just done. So that's why they talk because it's a female. A female. <laughs> I didn't say that. <laughs> yes, I, that's, yes. Okay, I'm going on. <laughs> 739. <laughs> a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. Now, here's a wonderful application right here. This is something that when people ask a completely different question at times, I will often come to this verse and I'll say, see what this says? Okay, because he's making a point here. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives, but if her husband dies, she is at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. Okay? And he uses that same example concerning covenants. Right? You've got a covenant. As long as the covenant is active, you're under that covenant. But when the testator dies or whatever, and the covenant ends. Excuse me. And so... That's a wonderful verse to be able to support. I think it's uh, in the book of Romans 7. I, I might be wrong. Anyway, they tie together very nicely. Okay, verse 39. Paul's words now are probably a direct response to a question put forth by the Corinthians. However, even if not directly asked, we got time for, I think, one more. Uh, they are, still provide a well-rounded summary of his previous thoughts on marriage. First, he reiterates his earlier words by stating that a wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. This law is speaking of that of God from the beginning of creation, conscience in Christ, and New Testament theology, not the Old Testament law, which has been set aside by the work of Christ. Everybody got that? He's speaking about what God ordained. He's speaking about the uh, conscience that we have in Christ about being married to a person, and the New Testament theology, which establishes the rules of marriage. The Old Testament, regardless of what it says about marriage, is set aside in Christ. Christ is the embodiment of the law. He fulfilled the law. Hebrews 7, 8, and 10 say that the law is set aside. It is annulled. It is obsolete. Colossians 2, 14 says that the uh, law is nailed to the cross. Christ died on the cross. When he died, the embodiment of the law, the law died with him. We are not under law. We are under grace. We could go through 50 more verses like that explaining that we are not under the law in any way, shape, or form. Okay, so this is what it's speaking to. I'll read it one more time. From It's speaking of what God has ordained from the beginning of creation, conscience in Christ, New Testament theology. Those are the three areas that we need to remember what governs our walk before the Lord and especially in the context marriage. Okay, as long as the husband is alive, she is bound to him. However, if her husband dies, she's at liberty, liberty to be married to whomever she wishes. Again, in this verse, it is implicitly seen that the giving of a virgin in marriage was done by the one who had responsibility over her, not by her own choice. This is unlike today where that right is generally granted to those getting married and by mutual consent. Having noted that for the widow, there were no restrictions, and the choice to remarry was hers, as Paul says, to whom she wishes. Paul speaks of the widow's freedom from her marriage. It was Romans 7. Here, I wrote it there, and I didn't even look at my notes. So here we go. Romans 7, 2 and 3. It says there, oh, let me start in verse 1. Or do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, speaking of the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives. For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. But if the husband dies, 
she's released from the law of her husband. So then, if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she is called what? An adulteress. That's right. But if her husband dies, she's freed from that law. So she is no longer an adulteress. Let me see that again. Uh, she's freed from the law so that she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. And then he goes on to speak about our relationship with Christ in that context, in that understanding. Okay, understanding that a woman is freed from the marriage by the death of her husband, and that she is free to marry whom she wishes, Paul adds in one caveat regarding requiring her obedience, which is that she must marry within the Lord regardless of whether her previous husband was a believer or not if she is a believer she is required to marry a christian several reasons for this should be obvious but above all her consideration of christ as her head is the most important how could she be honoring christ by allowing a non-christian the authority over her paul speaks of the headship of christ over man and the headship of the husband over the wife in 1 corinthians chapter 11. Her marriage to a non-believer would ultimately be dishonoring of Christ. Paul gives this same general guideline in 2 Corinthians 6 verse 4, where he says, Do not be unequally yoked together with unbelievers. Marriage implies a yoke, and to be yoked to a non-believer in marriage would certainly be an unequal yoking. Okay, if you have a ox and you have a donkey and you yoke them together, what's going to happen? One is going to wear the other out, right? It's not going to work. That donkey is going to die of stress and distress and the ox is just going to drag that dead donkey along. It's not going to work, okay? That's the point that he's making there, okay? Therefore, Paul's words are intended to honor Christ and ensure that he is exalted in our lives. Life application and we are done. Heartstrings are far less important than obedience. Remember, we talked about that two weeks ago. Okay. Well, what was it I was saying? And mom so wisely shouted out. I said something about, oh, yeah, um, not being happy. The Bible never speaks of happiness in marriage. It never speaks of it as a requirement I'm talking about because it does speak of happiness in the marriage, you know, in the Song of Solomon. But if you are unhappy in a marriage, the Bible does not say, okay, I'm unhappy, I can leave. And mom said something that made everybody laugh. I can't remember what it was. But anyway, um, same thing here. When making decisions in life, the first and most important consideration is our allegiance to Christ. We need to make sure that our emotions don't drive our decisions lest we be led astray from a proper walk with him. And I've said this many, many times that we are never to let our emotions drive our theology, ever. But we are to let our theology drive our emotions. When we understand what Christ did, when we understand the sin debt that he paid, I don't understand how anybody can contemplate that for more than a couple of minutes without breaking down in tears, saying, I can't believe what Christ did. It, it's, it's beyond our comprehension. So never let your emotions drive your theology. When you do, you will always, not sometimes, you will always fall into error. You will fall into error when you say, I'm going to make an emotional decision on this theological issue. You will never, never be correct in it. You will always err. But if you allow your theology, which is based on the Bible, allow or drive your emotions, you will be in the sweet spot with the Lord. That is one of the things that I recommend above all else to you. And from there, 
we'll go ahead and say a prayer and we're done. Heavenly Father, thank you so very much for the chance to be in your presence, to share your word, and to just learn about you and what you expect of us more and more each day. Thank you for the marvel of what you did in the stream of humanity by entering into that stream in the womb of a woman and coming as a man and living the life that I could never live, that no person on this planet could ever live. The man who does these things will live by them. And the Bible records time and again, all the way through the time of the law, that no person continued to live. They all died, every one of them. They're all in their graves right now, except Christ. He came and he did the things and he lived. His life was given up for us on the cross of Calvary. He was dead and he was buried. And praise God, he came out of that grave on the third day. And he has proven that he has prevailed over the law. And because of that, we have his grace. Thank you for the grace of Jesus Christ, our Lord. And it's in his beautiful name we pray. Amen. Okay, let me back this up. There we go, break.